So you're going to be a starving artist? Have you considered something more, you know, practical? How will you make money? Why not get an MBA instead? We've all heard it before. Your family's well-meaning pleased with you to ditch your art and find something practical to pursue in your career, whatever that means. Turn practical advice for impractical pursuits. Students in MSU's Arts, Cultural Management, and Museum Studies program will explore stories from industry professionals across arts and culture, arming you with all the knowledge you need to not just make it, but thrive. Hi, my name is Alex Cousins, and I am a junior BFA acting major as well as in the Arts and Cultural Management minor here at Michigan State University. And today I'll be talking about COVID-19 and how it has impacted the arts world and some advice for arts managers on how to deal with these troubling times. My guest today is Heather Marie Montilla, one of my professors in the Arts and Cultural Management program. She's also the Library Bureau Chief at PBS Books. Uh, so Heather, thank you so much for being here this morning with me. Alex, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I'm so excited to be able to, to talk about um, what's going on in the world and for us to figure out where we can go and how we can use art to fix fix where we are. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so let's get right into it. Um, so first, if you just take a minute maybe to describe kind of your role at PBS Books and kind of what is your um, job in terms of like programming and just kind of what do you do there? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So um, PBS Books started in 2015. I was hired in 2018 because of a Knight Foundation grant, and I was really hired to build a library engagement program. Um, what I basically did, I was formerly the head of a arts cultural library. And so I was hired because they were like, well, you know, libraries, you were the head of a library, you know, you know what to do. And what I knew is that I needed to ask others what they needed. Um, so I started with focus groups. I talked to, you know, key um, libraries across the country to ask them what programming they need, how we could leverage PBS assets to make the library world a better place. And as you know, libraries in many communities are very much the, the cultural hub of their community. You know, most libraries in this country, you know, serve under 25,000 people. And so they are very much providing um, critical services, not only um, literacy and books, but also arts and culture. So fast forward, um, we launched, a, you know, fast forward a few months in uh, 2019, we launched a library engagement program. And when I say we, I'm the library bureau chief, but I also developed most of the programs. Um, and I also then um, started... Uh, one of the most popular things was taking the, the I would call them flagpole um, the big, uh, big shows on PBS and doing screenings at libraries nationwide um, and partnering with libraries and local stations to make that possible. In addition, you know, I can tell you we did, you know, I do regular book lists and I would do um, tell libraries how they could utilize our over 700, um, their arch we have an archive of over 700 videos that libraries can use in any way they in, sorry, in any way they want. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the most special things we were doing was screenings. And 
Um, we launched that in, let's say, fall 2019, and we were doing country music. Ken Burns Country Music was the big show that came out, and we had uh, hundreds, I want to say it was over 300 uh, libraries that did screenings in their community, and so thousands and thousands of, of people were able to have this special experience in their libraries, educational content supporting arts and culture, and connecting with local PBS, which is all about education. Um, and we were doing more of the same, right? I was doing more of that planning for 2020, right? I was uh, mm -hmm. had three huge documentaries coming up, and then COVID happened, and all of the, yeah. you know, more than 100 screenings got canceled, and it just became crazy. And so I think what everyone did was they sat there and thought, what do, how can I fill a void that's been created and how can I pivot in a way that makes sense? So, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's what I did. I, I you know, so I'm not sure I, what have you seen? Have you seen similar experiences across, across the, across the arts uh, world? No, Alex? yeah, absolutely. Um, once, you know, it, it's very insane, like, looking back, back in March, like, I had that weekend, I think that weekend of spring break, I, my sister and I went to go see some friends in their high school show, and the thought hadn't even crossed my mind that if it had happened the next weekend, it, like, we wouldn't have been able to go see it, and so I think, like, once that point hit, like, there was, like, that moment for artists and arts organizations just to sit back and be like, what? what the heck do we do now? Once, once like it, you know, it started to hit that it would go on for a lot longer than just the initial two weeks. Like, I think it was a, like, kind of, it was definitely a crisis, I think. Cause like, obviously we know that unfortunately arts organizations, a lot of them are already, you know, struggling just in a, to, even with a full season of programs and shows to, um, you know, make enough money to sustain them. So, um, it then it like I think it took you know a few few weeks to kind of get going and then like the creative the creative juices started flowing I think and like people I think were able to kind of draw back to their roots of um why they kind of got into the arts management kind of process in the first place and were able to put out some really cool um different projects you know use utilizing zoom and utilizing um just video and stuff they normally would never even think about doing um so yeah. Oh, I'm, I was just going to say that's exactly right. And that's what we basically did. Like I, you know, as I said, those, you know, about a hundred screenings got canceled. And then I'm thinking of my funder, which was, is national PBS. And I was thinking, well, what am I going to tell them I did for the money they gave us right now in, in reality, the world was such a different place, but you know, back in, March, we didn't know how long it was going to last. And we didn't know exactly what the realm was going to look like and, and really the tremendous impact. And so I quickly pivoted and um, decided, so the gene by Ken Burns was coming out. And that's where I was supposed to have all of these, these conversations. And I spoke with um, the, the national, uh, production, um, PBS station. And I asked them if there was any grant money where I could do a program that was, you know, for libraries and beyond, um, Michigan focused. Um, and then I put together 
one of the benefits was, you know, you have all of these brilliant minds who can't go anywhere. So I had like, I had two Harvard, uh, Harvard professor, an MIT professor, University of Michigan, like someone who like worked, founded, like not founded DNA, but one of the main people, main, you know, just brains on DNA, one of the main brains on RNA, you know, just these amazing voices and got them all to be on a panel um, to talk about, you know, the gene. But we use this new technology called OV, which was funded by CPB. Um, and that's the only place that this sacred um, PBS content could be utilized and no one knew how to use it within the system. Mm. And not only that, until less than 24 hours before my event, they were still debating if they could figure out how to get the screener, which I was like this, this clip onto the broadcast, right? And and it was one of those things that, you know, my partner in DC was calling me and being like, I'm so sorry to tell you this, Heather, but I ha I'm not sure this is going to work. And I was like, you know what? We just have to believe. And at the end of the day, I if it doesn't work, I have this amazing panel and they can talk rings around almost anything, right? But the other thing that I, I struggled with was I was doing all the PR, all the marketing, all of the like the thought of it. And then at one point I was going to do the moderating and I was yeah. like, Oh my gosh, yeah. no, like, <laughs> you know, and I like called, so I called the executive producer at my station and I was like, you know, can you please do this? A, because these people are like the smartest people in the country on this topic, you know? And I was like, and I just don't have the mental capacity to prep yeah. to be able to put cohesive conversation together. So that was the first one I did. And what was amazing for me, because also the filmmaker was on that, his name is Chris Durant, and he's so cool um, and, and such a, a, an amazing um, do documentary filmmaker. Um, he, um, you know, he was able to talk about the creative process and what he was working on. Um, and, and so what was neat about all of that was that we were the first station in the country when COVID happened to have an engagement event on this very difficult platform. And so then I became a resource for PBS stations around the rest of the country. And that was good and bad because <laughs> I was still trying to pivot the rest of my programs and I was providing advice and help um, to stations to try to figure out how to utilize this platform and what worked, what didn't work, um, how they could streamline it, et cetera. Um, but then I also realized that the, the platform, and once again, it's called OV, it's O-V-E-E, -E, um, it was great in a lot of ways, Alex, but on, on the downside, it's really clunky and um, I couldn't necessarily always guarantee, um, it costs my station more money to do programs on that platform mm -hmm. versus Facebook Live or YouTube or Instagram okay. or whatnot. And so I ended up pivoting to do more of my programs on Facebook Live because that's where we have a huge following um, and where I needed less permissions and less internal staff resources to be able to go. And at this moment, DPTV in the spring, they cut about a 10th of their staff, they let go. And so PBS Books is out of Detroit Public Television, um, but it's a little bit of a silo. It's a national arm of this local, this local, local TV uh, PBS station. 
Um, and so, you know, it's really hard when everyone's now doing two people's jobs to also ask those people, oh, can you also, you know, spend extra time on this national initiative? So I did a lot of it um, on my own. But what was so cool is libraries. It was so clear the need for this for libraries. Yeah. And not just the literary um you know, not just with the films, but the books, right? They wanted to talk to, you know, I, I one of my programs we did for kids. Um, so the two, basically after those two initial, I did that program and then DNA Day, I promised to libraries that every month I would do one program for adults and one for, for kids ages eight through 14. Um, and that we would highlight authors and illustrators um, and that we would really um, try to go along with timely current topics, whether it be trailblazing women during the 100th anniversary of the 19th Me- uh, Amendment, the ratification of the 19th Amendment, or if it was, and we interviewed, I interviewed both um, Elaine Weiss about her, well, my, we had an event, um, Elaine Weiss about a, a woman's hour and also uh, Martha Jones about um African-American and their fight for suffrage and their fight overall for equality. Um, And those, one was in June, one was in July, and they were so well attended. And it was really amazing. Um, And what I would say is I started to realize the role, the important role PBS could fill, books could fill, um, because libraries said, we just don't want we don't, yes, we want these author events, but we also want arts and culture. And so we started also um, giving them an arts and culture series on Friday nights. Um, So it just kind of like, it it became really clear that I stepped into something that we could be almost, uh, we could help in such a big way because all of these libraries had to close their doors and had no way to really serve their communities. And a lot of them didn't have the, the technical expertise to do these online programs um, or access to these people, right? Right. Like I get to interview like world renowned authors um, and, you know, they say yes, because it's because I'm able to have a large reach across the country in all 50 states in all, you know, in libraries in all 50 states or PBS stations, which is a really cool thing. Um, No, that's really, really fascinating. Um, I really want to touch on, like the your your demographic of children specifically because um i that is you know <laughs> i you know with kids now a lot of them having to be in school for periods of time you know on zoom and it's new environment and it's probably uncomfortable and strange for a lot of them and you know they might you know obviously now you know there's not theater going on there are not these in person kind of arts experiences they might be getting and it's so important at like the age especially you know like you were saying like that eight to 13 year old age to get them exposed to um the arts and like museums and things like that so what what advice do you have to um organizations that generally focus more towards children um in developing programming for them online in a way that will still keep them engaged but also kind of get them the information and the healthy kind of experience they need. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I wish I had the full answer, <laughs> um, but I have, I think you you might know this, Alex, I have two kids in that age right. range. So I get really clearly, um, 
you know, and it's, this is going to be a hard thing. And I know lots of people reject it, but after 12, 12 to 18, doing short, doing shorts on TikTok that drive people to more substantial content, honestly, is probably the way. And I know people think, I don't want to be on TikTok. I'm an educational institution. I don't want, but and I guess the, the compromise could be Instagram, but the bottom line is starting at at 12, uh, whether we like it or not, um, most kids have cell phones, especially right now, or some electronic yep. device, and that's what they're on. And so if we, we can pretend like it's not happening, but it is. Um, and even with the Facebook content I'm creating, you know, I'm recognizing that in many cases, it's a parent sitting down with their kids saying, watch this. Um, and that in itself, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'll tell you, I struggle with the, this a little bit. And I, you know, I, my 10 year old, right. Mm -hmm. He did a, he did a project on um, Hamil, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Michigan History Day last year. And he you know, he actually, I watched him on YouTube looking for different Hamilton slices and dice, you know, and seeing and watching and it, being into it. Um, but I think the unfortunate part, and as arts and cultural organizations, we what we have to think about is <laughs> we're up against kind of a look, you know, this, the deck is stacked against us. Video games have, the video game companies since the 90s have hired people to make games addictive right right there are no arts organizations out there figuring out how we can make our arts addictive yeah. <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> that's a real problem because because kids um you know when we think about how can we create even like badges or incentives for students, young people to navigate different arts and cultural experiences. That's probably something we should do because that's the world they're in, you know, and I, and it's almost, I almost think, you know, when I was growing up, I'm, you know, a little over 40, um, a car meant freedom to me. And that was at 16. Right. And when, and I didn't get one, but that's like, that's what equated freedom. The new generation, a phone equates freedom. And it used to be high school and now it's middle school and now it's upper grades of elementary school. Right. So they already have that freedom to almost to do what they want. Um, and not everyone, obviously, but more than you think. Um, and, and so I say that to say, if we want young people to get excited about those arts and cultural experiences, then I think as we explore new media, as we explore ways to incentivize, because everything for the upcoming generation is instantaneous gratification. So how do we incentivize them to have that, that arts or cultural experience they might not have otherwise? Um, and can we set it up in a game style? I'll, I'll refer us to um, the graduate presentation we experienced yesterday where um, someone was talking about an exhibit where the where artists had created like video game experiences for others to experience. And I think I'm not saying that's the solution, but I'm saying especially during COVID when museums are closed or or limited in access how else are we providing, you know, these entry points and how are educators doing it? And I think it's, think about, um, so I teach a managing the creative process class mm -hmm. at um, 
CMU. And one of the assignments is called Rock Your Boat. Um, and it's to get an Airbnb, it's a required assignment. And the point of the assignment is you have to go, even during COVID times, online and find an arts experience you would typically not go to. So if you're a musician, you can't go to a music mm. performance. If you're, yeah. right, if, and the point is getting outside your comfort zone. And I think to encourage young people to to have that experience, I mean, I know from working in arts education, if you don't take, if you don't have the experience of going to a museum before you're 18, likely you're never yeah. going to go. Um, and so it's really critical to ha- to encourage young people to see beyond, or you'll think it's for, you know, oh, rich, snotty people. That's not for me. Right. And museums like libraries are for everyone, um, no matter what, what the topic of the museum. It's a celebration of culture. Yeah, those are some um, those are some really good points. I think, yeah, just like and and especially with like the declining like even like music and art programs like just in schools, it's it's so important that they're getting this type of experience. Heather, thank you again so much for being here. That was really insightful and interesting um, to hear from your perspective on things. Uh, And thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you check out everyone else's podcast as well. Um, And we'll see you next time. This has been Practical Advice for Impractical Pursuits, a Michigan State University Arts, Cultural Management, and Museum Studies podcast. Thank you to our program director, K.F. Latham, and the Michigan State University College of Arts and Letters for supporting this project. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. To hear more episodes and learn how Michigan State is training future arts administrators to manage with compassion and care, visit artsmuseumsmanagement.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast.